Welcome to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. All right, welcome back. Today we're going to be talking mainly about D-Day, which was really the turning point of World War II and the war in Europe. So we're going to get into all the facts about D-Day in this podcast. The first segment, we're really going to get North Africa, which is where the United States, when the United States shows up in Europe during World War II, at first they don't go to Europe. At first the Americans go to North Africa. So we'll discuss that and the reasons for that. And then we'll get into D-Day proper, which is June 6, 1944. And that's really the beginning of the turning of the war. Up until that point, Nazi Germany had been on the expansion. And D-Day is the first day in four years that Allied troops had boots on the ground in Western Europe. So, and it takes about almost another year for them to actually invade Germany and end the war in Europe. So D-Day is the big turning point, and that will be the second part of the segment. And we'll talk about how that leads to victory as well. The basics on D-Day, it occurs June 6, 1944. It is the largest seaborne invasion in military history, and it really turns the tide of the war in Europe against Germany and in favor of the Allied powers. So it's the beginning of the end for the Third Reich. So when we come back from this short break, we will get into North Africa. Until then, enjoy White Cliffs of Dover, a very popular World War II song. Again, 
Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that version of Wife Clips of Dover by Vera Lynn, a very famous singer from the 1940s. And um, before we get into North Africa, I just want to do the basics real quick. Um, World War II begins officially in September of 1939 when Germany invades Poland. For most of the 30s, trouble is brewing in Europe and in the Pacific. So the war begins proper in 1939. The United States goes from neutrality to supporting the allies through weapons but the united states does not officially join the war until after pearl harbor is bombed on december 7th 1941 so it's not until 1942 the spring when the americans show up in europe for the first time so at that point the war is already almost two years old Um, germany italy and japan make up the axis powers and mainly in europe it's germany and they've been on the aggressive. Germany, one relatively small country in Eastern Europe, by 1942, occupies most of Europe. Okay? And then the Allied powers in Europe, the main ones in the East, Britain is really the only power that hasn't fallen to Germany, in, or excuse me, in the West. And in the East, um, the Soviet Union is the main Allied power in the East. Um, Hitler kind of sucker punches the Soviet Union the leader of Germany, and he signs a non-aggression pact with them and then invades them. So the Soviet Union is an allied power because of common enemy, Adolf Hitler, and Germany. So the leader of England this time is Winston Churchill, and the leader of the Soviet Union this time is Joseph Stalin. So when the Americans finally show up in 1942, um, Churchill wants the Americans to go to North Africa. Stalin is imploring the Americans to go straight to Europe. And the American generals want to go straight to Europe. So FDR has to make the final decision. And FDR decides he agrees with Churchill and he agrees with the English that they should go to North Africa first. So when the Americans show up in 42, the first place the American troops go is to the deserts of North Africa, where they face Germany and one of their most able commanders, Erwin Rommel, known as the Desert Fox. So the reason for that, the reason England doesn't want the United States to go straight to Europe and instead go to Africa. Um, What's valuable in Africa is the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal connects the Mediterranean with the Red Sea. And if Germany can occupy the Suez Canal, get their hands on that, they will have an unlimited supply of oil from the Middle East for the war machine, which is already very strong. So England, Britain is doing everything they can to hold on the Suez Canal. So they want the Americans to show up down there to help defend the Suez Canal. So Hitler does not get direct supply to the Middle East oil. And also, the real reason is he's afraid if the Americans come running in full charge, like John Wayne and the Cowboys, um, and go to Europe and lose, then what? So really, they want the Americans to go to North Africa to get some experience, fighting experience, against the Germans, the Desert Fox down there. So if you combine it up, 
That's what England wants. They want to hold on to the Suez Canal, and they want the United States soldiers to get experience before we attempt a, in, a mainland invasion of Europe. Now, Stalin is imploring the United States to go straight to Europe. The reason for that is in the East, Russia, Soviet Union, is taking the brunt of Hitler's war machine. So Hitler's facing a two-pronged war, war in the East and war in the West, and at no point does the Western allies take the brunt of the war. So what Stalin really wants Roosevelt to do is to open up a second front in the West, in France. That way, Hitler would have to call off some of his war machine and relocate his troops and relief pressure, relieve some of the pressure on Soviet Union. So Roosevelt's got a decision, and Roosevelt's generals, most of them want to go straight to Europe as well. But he agrees with the British, and when the Americans show up, the first thing they do is go to North Africa, and down there they get valuable experience fighting against Erwin Rommel, one of the more capable German commanders, and they are able to successfully hang on to the Suez Canal. So once the, the Allies defeat the Germans in North Africa, then they kind of come up from there across the Mediterranean to Sicily, and then into the boot of Italy, and they start waking, working their way up. So by the time we get to the summer of 44, when D-Day occurs, the Allies, Americans, have successfully defended the Suez Canal in North Africa and occupy Sicily and about half the boot of Italy. So it's been um, almost two years of warfare that tells you it's not much territory. It just tells you how tough, difficult the fighting was. So it's not easy. Now, Hitler knows by the summer of 44, he knows... An invasion of mainland Europe is coming. He just doesn't know exactly where it's going to be and when it's going to be, but he knows it's coming. So Hitler's problem is he's got to defend thousands of miles of coastline, and he's got to guess where the Allies are going to come. Now, the two logical places is from England across the English Canal to France or just continue fighting up through Italy into Europe. So that's where he basically puts most of his defenses. So as bad as D-Day was, and D-Day is literally hell on earth, if Hitler would have known for sure where they're coming, if he could have concentrated all of his forces in Normandy, north coast of France, and wasn't fighting the Soviet Union in the east, D-Day could have been much worse. So um, that lays the backdrop to D-Day. So when we come back for the last segment, we will discuss D-Day itself and Eisenhower's role and how things unfolded on June 6, 1944. So enjoy this short break, and we'll be right back. daylight mission over the heart of Hitler's fortress, American bombers combined with British air forces are pounding Germany with raids around the clock. One propeller out, a bomber limps home. In all, 68 American planes failed to return. 
But the next day and the next, American bombers returned in follow-up raids. All right, welcome back from that short break. I hope you enjoyed that movie commercial or advertisement. It really was. It was a war update. Now, keep in mind, during World War II, which was in the 1940s, the United States was still primarily a radio generation. Television is in its infancy. Television doesn't really start to take over until the 50s, and the 60s is really the first decade where the television has completely passed the radio. So at this point in the 40s, if you wanted to read the latest news, you got a newspaper. If you wanted to hear the latest news, you could turn on your radio and get updates from World War II in the Pacific and in Europe. And, and then the only place you could go to if you wanted to watch and listen to the latest news from the battlefronts in Europe and the Pacific was movies. So like today when you go to the movies and they have coming attractions, well, back then before the movies, they would have three, five, seven, ten-minute updates on what's going on in the war. So there'd be correspondence there, they'd film it, and you would also could hear it. So that was the movies was a place of information as well as entertainment during World War II. So the movies was the only place you could go and watch and listen to the latest in World War II. And what you listened to was a little clip there of the United States attacking Berlin towards the end of World War II in Europe. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. Now let's get on to D-Day, the specifics of it. Um, D-Day in U.S. history is June 6, 1944. That's the date that Allied troops first landed boots on the ground in Western Europe. Where they landed was at a place called Normandy, France. It's a region in northern France right across the English Channel from England. Now, on that day, the English Channel is not very big. There's been hundreds of people who have swam across the English Channel. So keep in mind, it's a small body of water that separates England and France. And on that day, June 6, 1944, um, in the English Channel, which is the largest seaborne invasion in military history, there was over 156,000 men from three different nations primarily, mostly the United States and then Great Britain and then a few Canadians. So you're talking mostly Americans and British troops, 156,000 of them were crossing the English Channel in almost 7,000 different vessels, like ships, big ships, little ships, that kind of stuff. So this is... Planning the logistics of D-Day is a nightmare. So who was in charge of planning D-Day? Uh, it was an American general, and, and the guy that FDR tabbed for this operation is Dwight David Eisenhower. So General Eisenhower, his job was to plan D-Day. He's the guy charged with drawing up the overall tactics to take down Hitler and Nazi Germany in, in World War II in Europe. So the, the logistics of this are a nightmare. Like, you've got troops from different countries. You've got 150,000 men, 7,000 vessels, all, like, in a bathtub, basically, in a very small body of water. And if you know anything about military planning, whenever something can go wrong, it usually does. And it did here as well. So here was the original plans. They were going to have five separate landings along Normandy. And they gave these beaches code names. Okay? And the code names were Juno, Sword, Utah Beach, Omaha Beach. Out of all the different code names, the most famous is Utah Beach, and by far the most famous is Omaha Beach. The reason for that, 
Utah and Omaha are the two beachheads that the American troops were charged with taking. So the others, Juno, Soar, and Gold, those beaches were taken by the British slash Canadian troops. Okay, So if you're looking at a map, Utah and Omaha Beach are on the far west of Normandy. So those are the two the Americans take. So when D-Day comes, weather's not good that day. When they land, several of the sea vessels get blown. Guys land a half mile, mile away from where they're supposed to land. And there's no plan for this. So you just kind of fight your way back to there the best you can. So D-Day is literally hell on earth because Germany knew we were coming. They didn't know exactly when and exactly where, but they had some good ideas and guesses. So the first guys that come there early on June 6, 44, all of those guys are expected to die on D-Day. That's the human cost to put boots on the ground in Western Europe because Germany has the high ground, they're well fortified, they're entrenched, and they're shooting down on you. Anybody that survived the morning of D-Day is a miracle, walking miracle because they were not expected to survive. That's what it takes. That's the human cost what it takes to, to get a permanent boots on the ground beachhead. Now, why is this so important? Because once you occupy Western Europe, then you can bring the rest of your troops, you can bring the rest of your supplies over safely, and you can launch the invasion from France, Normandy, eventually all the way through Berlin. Without boots on the ground in Europe, you can't do that. So D-Day is the turning point in the Battle of Europe, and it's June 6, 1944, and Dwight David Eisenhower is the general in charge of planning it. Now, once the Americans and the British and the Canadians, once they get take these beachheads, um, to give you an idea, from Omaha Beach to Paris, which the Americans were charged with liberating or freeing Paris from, Germany control, from German control, Nazi control, um, you can drive that in, I don't know, an hour maybe. Um, for them, they landed June 6th. Paris was not liberated until September. So if you're doing the math, you get June, then July, then August. So it takes about three months for the American troops to fight their way from Normandy, Omaha Beach, down and free Paris, which tells you that this is not easy. Germany is not just letting the Americans and letting the Allied powers come. They are putting up strong resistance. Keep in mind, at the same time this is going on, Germany is also fighting the Soviets in the east. So as bad as D-Day was, and the casualties there, I mean, it's literally hell on earth if you look at some of the casualties. But as bad as D-Day was, it could have been much worse if Hitler was not fighting the Soviets in the East at the same time. So he, the whole time, the Soviets are taking the brunt of the German military invasion, not the Allies in the East. So once Paris is liberated, then the goal there is for the Americans to continue on to Germany, for the British to continue on, and the British go through Belgium. And then in the East, the Soviets are closing in on Germany as well. So the Allied goal at this point is to invade from the east and west, and the race is on to Berlin. So um, on the, along the way, the Allied troops are winning, and it goes from Germany controlling most of Western Europe to Germany no longer controlling all of Germany. So by the time we get down to the winter of 44, 45, um, Hitler is being closed in on on all sides by Allied troops. So what he decides to do is take one last shot and break out, and that's known as the Battle of the Bulge. It begins in December and goes all the way through January, so it's the winter of 44, 45. 
And what Hitler does is on the western lines between the Americans and the British, he believes that's the weakest part of the line. So he takes what the bulk of what he's got left and he throws it at those lines. And the line bends but doesn't break. Hence, Battle of the Bulge. The line bulges. But this is Hitler's D-Day. He is attempting to break through the Allied stranglehold, live to fight another day. But it's unsuccessful. The Americans and the British reinforce the bulge, push back, and Hitler loses the Battle of the Bulge in the winter of 45. What that means is that was his last great chance of escaping. So from the winter of 45 until the end of the war, Hitler is basically underground and not in control anymore. So the Battle of the Bulge was a very important battle, and it was a last-ditch effort by the Germans to break out, and it was unsuccessful. So after that, the race is really on to Berlin. So who were the first ones to get to Berlin? It was not the Americans, and it was not the British. The first ones to get to Berlin was the Soviets in the east. The Soviets win the race to Berlin. So the Battle of Berlin brings to a close the war in Europe. It's the final battle. And here are the Soviet casualties from the Battle of Berlin. The Soviets lose 81,000 men taking the city of Berlin. The Germans, they lose 458,000 troops trying to defend Berlin in the last battle. That's 458,000. If you add them up together, they have over 530 casualties, which is almost as much casualties as the entire four-year American Civil War. So Berlin is a very bloody battle. Now, Berlin falls on May 2nd, but the surrender is not till May 8th. So it's known as Victory in Europe, or VE Day, and that is celebrated as May 8th, which is the end of World War II in Europe. So my question is pretty obvious to you. If you are a member of the Third Reich, if you are in the German military, and you've believed in Hitler since he came to power in 33, and you've served under him, it's now 12 years later, it's May 2nd, what's happened by then, Berlin has fallen, your, uh, your leader, Hitler, has committed suicide, your country, Ger- Nazi Germany, is gone, the Nazis, everything you're fighting for is gone. So my question is, why are you still fighting? Because individual soldiers soldiers continue to fight from May 2nd to May 8th. The surrender doesn't play for six more days. So the last week of the war, if you believe in Hitler, you believe in the Third Reich, why are you still fighting the last week of the war? And the answer is pretty simple if you look at the numbers. The Soviets, who had lost over 20 million people during World War II, that's including civilians and military, uh, Germany, Hitler, massacres Soviets the army and private citizens during World War II when he invades. So what's happening in Berlin is payback. The Soviets are not accepting German surrender, and they are brutally torturing and killing Soviet military or German military and German citizens. So the last week, what's basically happening is the German soldiers and citizens, all they're fighting for is to go west. They're trying to get as far away from the Soviet soldiers as possible so that they can find an American or British soldier to surrender to so they can live another day. Okay, so um, let's go over the final numbers from D-Day, which is the pivotal turning point in the war in Europe and eventually leads to the end of Europe, the end of the war, which is the Battle of Berlin. We repeat, there was 156,000 total troops, almost 7,000 vessels, 
there was over almost 12,000 airplanes there that day flying through the, or over the English Channel. If you're talking Allied deaths, there was almost 2,500 American Allied deaths. That's 2,499 confirmed American deaths. So 2,500 Americans died at D-Day that morning. And there was almost 2,000 other Allied deaths. So there's 2,499 American deaths. Now, the German deaths are hard to calculate because they didn't make them public, but the low estimate is about 4,000. The high estimate is about 9,000. Most historians believe it's probably towards the high than the low. So if that's the case, total about close to about 13,000 troops on both sides died just on D-Day trying to take permanent beachhead for the Allies. So, so D-Day is uh, one of the seminal days in U.S. history and for good measures because it basically leads to the beginning, the turning of the tide in the war of Europe and to allied victory in Berlin. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast on D-Day and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to like this podcast, ring that bell so you're notified whenever we drop a new podcast and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we will see you next week on Mr. Cornwell's Corner. 